the gospel according to Luke, in Luke 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theopolis, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Our second reading is from the book of Joshua. I'm sure you all know that's in the Old Testament. And we're once again, we're in uh, chapter 1. This is where God commissions Joshua. We're going to read through verses 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all according to the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Knew, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. For I have not commanded you, for have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Our final reading is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Thank you, Lord. This is the word of the Lord. 
So I'm going to piggyback today on John's message from last week. Uh, he did a teaching on why we're doing this new city catechism uh, for, for kids that are of reading age, so approximately second grade through approximately seventh grade, well, why we've launched this at both the 9.30 and the 10.30 service. If you really want to get your kids to get a lot out of it, I would encourage you to have them there at both services and make it a priority to, uh, to work on the homework with them, as we're going to see by the time we get done today. So let's, uh, the title today is a little bit of a long one. I'm a fan of 18th century theologians like the Puritans and so forth. And they usually had titles that were 30 or 40 words long. <laughs> and uh, you could, back in those days, you could judge a book by its cover because <laughs> it told you exactly what it, they were going to cover in the title. And of course, in those days, um, the, uh, they had an hourglass that they would start at the beginning of the pastor's sermon, and if he didn't turn the full hourglass at least once, he didn't get paid. So uh, if anyone's got an hourglass app on your phone, <laughs> go ahead and get it started now. <laughs> uh, no, I'll, uh, I won't go that long. It's modern America. Can't do that. All right, so the title is Multi-Layered Gospel and Kingdom Catechism, A Key to a Disciple-Making Model. Now, in our church, we talk a lot at Grace Christian Fellowship about uh, what it would take to move from the model of, called decision-making model of evangelism that developed in, in Bible-believing churches in the 19th century and has continued on into the 20 and 21st century, what it would move take, what are all the ingredients that it would take to move back to a disciple-making model as in the scriptures, the practice of Christ in the Gospels and the practice of uh, the apostles in the book of Acts and the New Testament church. What, what would we have to do to find all the ingredients to move from a decision-making model of evangelism where we present uh, Jesus as Savior and we try to get them to pray a sinner's prayer and, and punch a ticket to heaven and uh, then we optionally uh, present to them over time, we try to talk them into attending church regularly and reading their Bible and considering moving on to actually becoming a disciple of Jesus, a follower of the Lord, an obedient follower of the Lord who follows him by grace, working through faith. And uh, we present that as somewhat optional. And as we talked about in the first service at 930, uh, that is not in any way justifiable from Scripture. That's just what we have in our culture today, in the Bible-believing culture. So uh, if you want to read a little bit more on that, there was, uh, unfortunately, his, he was lost to the church. He died a, uh, the summer before last. Dallas Willard, a very well-known evangelical whose books are worth reading, uh, he wrote a book on that whole subject called The Great Omission, and then subtitled Reclaiming Jesus' Essential Teachings on Discipleship. And he presents how we've uh, made uh, discipleship or actually becoming a follower of Jesus an optional extra, but there's really no such biblical warrant for that message. So what, uh, in talking about how to make disciples, what I'm basically trying to say today is that a, is a church community having a multifaceted, many approaches from different directions, 
uh, gospel and kingdom-centered approach to catechizing ourselves as members, that is, teaching ourselves the faith as it was handed down uh, through Christ and the apostles. Having a multi-layered approach to that is the key to moving people into actual full conversions in a more biblical sense of the word. And that's, that's what I'm going to be arguing for today. So let's start with uh, Scripture. Very good place to start in a Bible study. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, Some authority, oh, I'm sorry, wrong translation. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make decisions of all nations. Sorry, I keep getting that wrong translation. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to think about, if they get around to it, all that I have suggested to you. And uh, lo, I am with you always. That's why some people don't fly, because he's only with us alone. No. And uh, even till, uh, you know, the, the rapture or, or something. All right, so I'm, I'm a little sarcastic, but uh, my bad. So... Um, Jesus is clearly saying, I just spent three and a half years with you as the model and the pattern. Go do what I did to you. And don't use modern discipleship books or methods that leave out things that I did. Do it exactly how I did it in every way that I did it. And, uh, and so forth. And we talked... Uh, the, the, we're, we actually kind of had some overlap today because the 930 message, we're going through Christology right now, an introduction to studying Jesus. And we talked about uh, one of the two main subjects today was we talked about how Jesus went about making disciples. I ran out of time, didn't get into that very much. So I'll probably actually just start there next week. So if you want to kind of look at the difference between modern discipleship and biblical discipleship, you'll get uh, several things that in, ma if, in many cases you may not have thought about. Uh, next week. So, I need new glasses. I need better eyes. All right, so now, uh, this is often called the Great Commission, but it's really Jesus' last commandment. It's his last orders. Uh, it, even in, an, in, you know, we're kind of the only army where when the general says, we want you to outflank them here, we go, well, I don't know about all that. The old man's getting a little screwy. <laughs> you know? uh, Jesus, it wasn't the great suggestion. Um, and I've already men mentioned Dallas Willard's book that's a study of this. So let me uh, make uh, six notes and an example on these scriptures. The King James actually goes just a little deep, more detail by adding the word whatsoever I command you uh, in place of all that I commanded you in the NASB, NKGB, ESV, and so forth. We've already mentioned that note two, commanded, not suggested. It orders. In, in Acts 1, it uses similar language, and actually some translations will put all that Jesus ordered them to do before he departed. Note three, observe. Uh, we kind of uh, have lost the meaning of that. Observe, we think, well, we might want to think about it. 
might want to study it and so forth. So I thought I would get into the Greek on that word a little bit. It's from the Greek word tereo, and it means to attend to carefully, to take care of, actually to guard in such a way that no one takes it from you. It means set a guard on the door of this. Uh, it's taken from the Greek word teros, to watch, to guard. So for, to guard from loss of in, uh, or injury uh, properly by constantly, vigilantly keeping your eye upon it. It takes vigilance. In the biblical times, a guard, if they fell asleep on their post, if they lost the prisoner, if there was a jailbreak, the guards were executed. That's why one of the points the gospel makes and many uh, what's called evidential apologists make about the resurrection is that uh, the guards were paid off by the, by the Sanhedrin, mostly Sadducees, some Pharisees on the Sanhedrin, to say that the disciples came and stole the body at night. And if you know anything about the culture at that time, that's clearly not possible. They're saying a lie that's just not going to wash. Because the guards would have been executed had they had G, G, the disciples came and stolen the body while they had fallen asleep. They wouldn't be telling you that. They'd be dead. Uh, that's why the Philippian jailer, after... Paul and Silas decide after they get beat up and, and uh, whipped and all that, and then they're, they're in chains, and then they decide, hey, this would be a pretty good time for a worship service. Anybody got a guitar? No. <laughs> and they, they start to sing psalms and hymns to God at midnight, and, uh, you know, what would we do? I don't know. Uh, I, I'd probably be crying for, you know, my, you know and my mom or something. Um, she's getting a little old to come help me. So uh, <laughs> I might cry for you guys to come. But, uh, but they decide to turn it into a prayer meeting. And, uh, and the, you know, the angel of the Lord causes an earthquake, and they're let go. And the Philippian jailer thinks, oh, my gosh, I might as well just kill myself because that's a lot less painful than how they're going to kill me. And by the grace of God, thankfully, uh, Paul and Silas say, don't do that. And they lead him to Christ. He and his whole household. And he attends to their wounds and they baptize him. Good exchange. Uh, I'll take that trade. Now, note four, if anyone's been around a while, you know that I have this joke that I've diligently studied the Greek whenever, when it says all, and I found out that all means all. <laughs> So I thought I'd actually do it for, for you for once. So the Greek word is pos, um, the uh, P alpha sigma. It means all, any, every, the whole. When it's used individually of an individual thing, it means each, every, any, all, the whole, everyone, all things, everything. When it's used collectively, it means some of all types. That's important because you, if you're in, uh, those of you who come to our Tuesday Bible study know that we're looking at re rediscovering and restor restoring all of biblical Christianity, which the average person today, because of modern ways of thinking, would say that's impossible. That's even pride and hubris. How could you have such an audacious goal? But Jesus says when the Holy Spirit comes, he shall lead and guide you into all the truth. Because he's speaking of not having every exact truth exactly right. He's speaking of having all the ca major categories of truth, which you can do. 
was enough study. So uh, note five, some things that Jesus didn't say. I already made a little fun of this. He didn't say make decision. He didn't say pray sinners prayers. And he didn't say teach some suggestions, not all commandments. And he didn't say this is a fluid deal or there's no pattern. He said, teach them all that I commanded you. Follow my pattern. So if discipleship, we talked, uh, and, we, and if you want to get more into this and get a full, more full explanation, I'm going to do next week's message on this since I didn't have enough time at 930 to get into it. But modern discipleship is informational. It's usually done by parachurch organizations such as campus ministries and so forth or universities and that sort of thing. But biblical discipleship is done in the church by people you know who invite you to follow them and you've actually been to their house and you've spent time with them. Uh, you know, Paul was able to say, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. Jesus didn't say, come hang out with me one hour a week. And in fact, when they were upset at uh, Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, I believe it is, uh, after the, in Acts 3, they raised the, the uh, lame man up. They, it says when, when they brought him before the Sanhedrin and when they said, when they observed the confidence of John and Peter and recognizing that they hadn't been formally ex instructed in their rabbinic schools, they were amazed at their confidence and they realize it's because they had been with Jesus. That's where this great wisdom and confidence was coming from. They were the guys who hung out with Jesus all the time. And we're used to Jesus being able to confound us when we try to trip him up. Now, now these followers of him are doing it. All right, so that's, that's important. There, there, there are models in Scripture, and it's, we don't just have the right to reinvent the church, reinvent discipleship, so forth. Discipleship must be done by New Testament communities. New Testament communities should have pluralities of elders. It should have a whole, all the New Testament elements of liturgy on a Sunday, such as Scripture readings and the Lord's Supper and creeds and all those things, because they're all in the New Testament. If, and... Uh, and it should include a community way of life where there's large group on the Lord's Day and all kinds of small groups throughout the week to help everyone grow from house to house and so forth. And so those are who's supposed to disciple. And the discipleship is not supposed to be just the first layer of discipleship called informational discipleship. In other words, you can't just take them through your particular denomination or groups, uh, three introductory books, and I made a disciple. Informational discipleship is really important as we're going to argue all about teaching today, but it has to also include formational discipleship where you form their character in Christ, where they live out of the wisdom of Jesus. where they don't make bad life decisions anymore because they're living out of biblical wisdom, where they're not underdeveloped in terms of uh, um, uh, emotional and uh, social and other kinds of developmental issues, where they are mature in Christ in every way of their life. So 
in, in addition, a third way that biblical discipleship is discipleship is impartational. Paul told Timothy to stir up the gift that was imparted to you through the laying on of mine and the other elders' hands. And there's, uh, there's uh, an impartation. Uh, Paul actually tells Timothy, he says, uh, Timothy, uh, you have followed my doctrine, my teaching, my way of life, and so forth. But he goes on to say, my purpose my persecutions, my sufferings, <laughs> and so forth. Most people stop at the end of the verse because the persecution and sufferings is on like the next verse. But uh, when you've known someone's motivations and their purpose, and that's actually infecting you, I'll tell you a big part of what I, I operate on, God by his grace enabled me to come to Christ through wonderful parents who were really spiritual pioneers in their day. And they taught me some things that sent me to a church in Bowling Green who had the goals to do a rethink on all of Christianity. And it was uh, primarily a guy named Joseph McAuliffe, but another guy named Peter Manto, uh, who helped me begin to do a rethink on everything. And part of what motivates me is I owe a lot of people that I've known and a lot of people I haven't known who's whose backs we stand on, as I'm always joking around, I loved, I read a lot of books by dead guys. <laughs> and I owe that great cloud of witnesses. And uh, if you've ever seen the, uh, the movie, The Ten Commandments with uh, Yul Brynner and Charlton Heston, uh, the Pharaoh, uh, Ramses, who's, uh, uh, Yul Brynner wants to be the, the once is ambitious and wants to be the new Pharaoh. And uh, Moses uh, is less ambitious, but he's wiser and so forth. And, uh, um, and, and Yul Brenner's character is making the case um, he, he, that he should be the next Pharaoh because he's the true biological son of the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh says, the man who's best suited to rule Egypt will be my heir. I owe that to my fathers. The reason we stress church history and church theology and historical theology so much is because it'll eventually possess your soul where you understand that we owe, we're debtors. We owe the Lord himself in all those who he sent when he said, I will build my church. And we don't have the right to do a lot of what's going on today, frankly. Well, I didn't mean to preach that point. Uh, I have a license to preach, so it's probably okay. Um, things stated, make disciples, observe commands, which means a way of life, teach all things, follow Jesus' pattern. Jesus, Here's an example of this. When Jesus called the disciples, he didn't say, follow me, pray a sinner's prayer, and hold out for heaven and attend church every week and read your Bible 10 minutes a week or something or have devotionettes every morning so that you can grow up to be a raisinette. Uh, he, he said, follow me and I'll make you become something. In this case, a fisher of men. Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you shall be becoming, the Greek word means my witnesses. So, 
it, all Christians should be in a process where you're becoming something you weren't. I always know people don't have the gospel quite in their heart just yet when they're a young Christian and they're always saying, well, my personality is this way and I'm this way and, and I'm, well, I'm just like this and so forth. What are you thinking about who you were before you were a Christian? You obviously real, don't realize if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, all things have passed away, and you're called not to, to be who you were, but who you are and are becoming in Christ. One of the mistakes of modern psychology is we look at our identity in our youth. My mother bit me when I was five, and, um, you know, I didn't self-actualize in kindergarten, and, you uh, know, all these kind of things. But biblical psychology, our, our frame of reference for who we are is the Lord Jesus himself. He is our model and pattern, and he is our psychology. All right, moving on. So that's uh, why I'm doing this today. Introduction. <laughs> All right, number two. I'm, I'm trying a little more expanded title. Multi I'm trying to say that a multi-layer, gospel-centered, and kingdom-oriented ongoing catechism is a key to disciple making. A little more full title. Sustaining Christ-centered, passionate community. I love how much community God's given us, and I'm not particularly that concerned that it's taken so long to develop. I'm very pleased with how much is developing and who's developing. Um, and passing down that faith without deterioration or death. You look at all the most dead churches today. I, I have a thing where I study uh, all sorts of church history. One thing I've studied a lot is all the denominations that are out there in the Bible-believing world. So many of them were crazy, bonkers, radicals for Christ in the late 1800s that are pretty much uh, dying today. That's not what the New Testament church experienced. They were still growing, becoming more radical, and they took over the Roman Empire in a five-year, five-century movement. As my son John used to say when he was a young guy, if you have a, a vision that you can live out in your lifetime, that's not a biblical vision. That's way too small of a vision. Your vision must be for your children's children spiritually, who the people you're discipling now are going to disciple. Your vision has to be at least two or three generations away to be biblical thinking. In Isaac shall you shall your be blessed. It's all about what kind of spiritual father and natural father, what kind of father you are. Now, before I get into the five goals I have for today, I want to give us a source note. So, a lot of ideas uh, that I'm talking about today are, uh, are in one of our books. Is Emily here? Emily Weiss? Oh, there. And uh, is this one on the list still, uh, grounded in the gospel? Because I know we've refined down the list to try to get it not to be so long. It's, it's, I don't know oh. if it's on the list, but it's in the library. It's in the library. Grounded in the gospel. 
There's about eight people in the church that I know that have read it at least, including Stephen. Uh, grounded in the gospel, where, where am I? Uh, a subtitle, Building Believers the Old-Fashioned Way. Uh, if you don't know who J.I. Packer is, Gary Pack Parrott is less known, but uh, ho hopefully you know who Packer is. Um, so I have five goals. Goal one, demonstrate that ongoing catechal lifestyle was and is an important New Testament church priority. In other words, it's in the Bible. It's not an idea that the third or fourth century church came up with or the Reformation or the Catholic Church, as most uh, evangelical believers believe today, that catechism is something that Lutherans and Catholics did a long time ago or something. It's in the Bible, as we're going to see. Goal two, promote loving God with all your mind as an ongoing investment priority. There's a book we also recommend called Love God with All Your Mind and uh, by uh, J, a guy named J.P. Moreland, who's, who was an associate of Dallas Willard. J.P. Moreland's still alive. He's a professor at uh, Biola University, which stands for Bim Biblical Institute of Los Angeles. And he has a great book called Love God with All Your Mind. And he documents how the church, the Bible-believing church, gradually became anti-intellectual and anti-serious Bible study after the Civil War, and why that has led, uh, along with a guy named Harry Blameyers, who has a great book on that. He was a disciple of C.S. Lewis, um, on why we've given birth to the most secular culture since, since Christ's resurrection because of our anti-intellectual approach to, to studying the Bible. In other words, we're not we're not challenging people to become serious Bible studies, studiers. Uh, goal three, discuss briefly some church history facts about catechism and tie that in with the Sunday school movement. We'll get to that, I hope. Goal four, make us aware of Grace Christian Fellowship's resources and programmings, programs for ongoing catechal lifestyles. And goal five, encourage parental buy-in to John Weiss's and Stephen Leopold's use of the New City Catechism. All right, so let's get into this. First point, catechism is biblical. Three technical examples from the New Testament. In other words, this is three times where the Greek word for catechism was used in a technical, definite way. And we'll talk about what it means in a minute. Luke 1, 1 through 4, Larry already were, read. So at the end, it says, he's writing this. The reason he's writing, and indeed all four of the gospel writers write it, because he, Christ said, when the Holy Spirit comes, John 15, 26, that the Holy Spirit will be my witness and you will be my witnesses. And now they have, they have planted these churches all over the Roman world. And some disciples like Thomas made it as far as India in the first century. I believe it was Andrew who made it to what is content, uh, currently Norway and Sweden area. In Finland and planted churches that up that far north in in the first century while the disciples were still alive, but most of the disciples spread the the gospel and planted churches within the bounds of the Roman Empire. Now, um, Luke's goal is to continue the ongoing catechism of the New Testament churches, as is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're basically ha saying. We have told you all these things. We've witnessed to you all these things. We have caused you to memorize all these things, as we'll see. And we want to be sure that the memory isn't lost over time by in adding uh, to oral memorization. We want to add a written account. 
And Luke is saying, I've done this in an orderly manner like a modern historian would be. Like Herodotus and Thucydides um, uh, five centuries earlier among the Greeks. Can't go into all that. Um, so the word taught is the word katecheo. And it means oral instruction derived from the Old Testament teaching methods that involved a series of questions with memorized answers and responses. Um, now, th so, so this kind of catechism, which is questions with memorized responses, which is the New City Catechism, and all catechisms throughout the centuries have been built on, is a very biblical practice. It actually, as many things in the church uh, in the first few centuries, actually traced their roots to the growth of the synagogue movement. Starting in 722 B.C. when the northern tribe of Israel was conquered, 586 or so B.C., when the southern tribe of Judea, in progressive dispersions, the, the Jews began a process called the Diaspora, where they were scattered among the nations, and that went on from eight centuries to approximately the early second century. And uh, during that time, synagogues developed, uh, and especially in the 200 years before Christ. And in the synagogue, as we talked about in the uh, first meeting, Everyone would be given, uh, uh, all the people who were called to read would be given a scroll and they would uh, read a portion and then they would comment on it. Jesus' very first sermon as he reads um, from Isaiah 61, 63, the spirit of the Lord is on me and so forth. And then his message is, today this scripture is fulfilled in your midst. That was the whole message. Much you probably need to get by his uh, podcast, not mine. But uh, <laughs> he can do it in one line. Um, so the the teaching was specifically, especially in uh, in the Roman Empire during the time of Christ. Both m young men and young women would grow up in the synagogue, being asked questions and then reciting the Mosaic law by memory. And every uh, child was expected to memorize the first five books of the Bible by the age of 12. Then when they had done that, they could go on to memorizing the Psalms and the prophets. And the most gifted students were asked by the best rabbis to, to continue their education, uh, whereas the least gifted students who only memorized just the Pentateuch and maybe a few other books and so forth, would uh, follow in their father's business. Jesus, when he makes disciples out of the fishermen, you know, it's common in our day to say they were uneducated men and so forth. That's nonsense. They knew the Bible better than any pastor you've met yet. And he was saying, the other rabbis have... have uh, uh, have passed you guys over, but I've got my reasons for, I'm going to, John the rabbi called you guys to follow him. They were actually, the Matthew, Mark, or not Matthew, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were disciples of John the Baptist, and Jesus stole them from John the Baptist. I would assume with John the Baptist's blessing, because he did say he is, you know, he must increase and I must decrease and so forth. And uh, Jesus said, there's reasons why I'm going to choose you to be my students.
I've got other criteria. That's another subject that we won't get into today. Now, handed down uh, is the wording in the New American Standard, the Orthodox Jewish Bible, the complete Jewish Bible, and a very interesting translation, I can't go into the philosophies thereof, called Common English Bible. Uh, Delivered is the ESV, NKGV, KJV, Young's Literal Translation, the Geneva Bible. Many Reformed people think you've got to read the 1599 Geneva Bible. I agree. Uh, Among others. Mounts and passed on is the New New English Translation. A very interesting, uh, what's called a dynamic equivalence approach in itself. Now, um, the Greek for handed down is, I'm the one that put the little plus sign in so you could see that it's too right, but it's paradidomai, and it doesn't have a plus sign in it. I just put it there so you could see that it comes from two Greek words more easily. And it, uh, it means to give into the hands of another, to give out over into one's power of use, deliver to one something to keep use of, take care of, manage, deliver one to be taught, etc. molded, commended, deliver verbally, commands or rights, deliver by narrating or report. Now, uh, para, we're, you should be familiar with, because we talk about parallel. Everyone knows in a, in a, in a uh, submarine, there's a periscope. And para means to come alongside, in addition to. And a uh, didomai means to teach. And so this, these things were taught in such a way as they were handed down, and the handing down of them very precisely and completely and without alteration was the whole goal. Okay? If anyone's ever seen, there's, a, there's actually a DVD or video or whatever, a movie out that's uh, called Matthew, and it was made by uh, made using the NIV translation, but they actually do uh, the entire Gospel of Matthew word for word. And one of the ways they achieve that is they have Matthew himself teaching his grandchildren the genealogies and so forth in the way it would have been done in biblical times. And so he will re- he'll be quoting a certain part of it, then he'll point to them, and they have to take it from there. So the Lord was not in the, and I'd say earthquake. <laughs> the Lord was not in the storm, but he was in the still small voice. There's a scene like that in the, a great movie called The Nativity. So um, 1 Corinthians 15.3 that we read in the readings today, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also made up, not what I also received. And he goes on to say that when he says delivered, the Greek word is parodidomai. I handed down to you as a first importance what was handed down to me. I, although Paul encountered Jesus directly, and he was one untimely born, the last apostle uh, of that generation that Jesus appeared to and so forth, yet... Uh, he was still taught these things by the other apostles and so forth, and he received their teaching. And uh, Lee Strobel, I always like to try and find evangelical guys to teach this stuff so you can 
even things see how reliable it is. But Lee Strobel brings out in the case for Christ that First Corinthians 15, 1 through 8 was actually a creedal statement that was recited on the Lord's Day by all the churches. And there's evidence they know that by 40 AD, all the churches were reciting the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 15. That Christ died according to the scriptures. What scriptures? There weren't any New Testament scriptures yet. That Christ died according to the Old Testament scriptures, or what I would prefer to call the Jewish scriptures or the Hebrew scriptures. And it twice uses the phrase according to the scriptures, and that's why the early church decided to leave it in according to the scriptures. Because these things aren't like, like it says later, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales or myths when we taught you these things. But we want, like Luke, we wanted you to know the exact truth of these things. These guys died for their belief that they had it right. Over 500 people claimed to have seen Jesus after his resurrection. Almost all of them could have, could have amended that to save their lives, but didn't. That's amazing, isn't it? Jude 1 through verse 3 says, I want you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for always paradidomi handed down. That's why people think, why are you so nutty about rediscovering and restoring the, uh, in, in, why do you spend hours and hours and hours studying every day for 40 years and so forth? Because we have to. We have to find what was handed down. And with, why do we talk about paradigms and understand historical paradigms and how we got to look at scripture one way and, and, and try to get you equipped so you, know, so you can consider how other Christians have looked at Scripture in other centuries, in other movements, because Jesus said, I will build my church, and it's just plain pride to think we're the only guys that have ever got this right, and the Scripture was written directly to us to be interpreted by our modern framework. Jesus has always been active in his church, and so studying what he has imparted by the Holy Spirit to various times, periods, movements, and seasons of the church. We often say at Grace Christian Fellowship, there's the Eastern way of looking at Scripture that eventually became the Eastern Orthodox churches. There's the Western way that by the 5th and 6th century started to develop into the Roman Catholic Church. There's the Reformation way. And then after the Civil War developed, the modern evangelical way, which I would argue is just as much of a modern, modern way of looking at Scripture as the liberal moderns. And so uh, what we want to encourage you is to learn how to think on a level that you can actually re-examine the Scripture from different ways of thinking, not just, I wasn't brought up that way. Can you imagine Jesus like saying to Peter and James, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. I'm sorry, I wasn't brought up that way. <laughs> Go find a church you're comfortable with. <laughs> You know, they didn't even have air conditioning back there. I don't think you, you could find a church you were comfortable with. Uh, you, f find the church that's going to challenge you the most. To do, be like the Bereans. The Bereans were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians because they searched the scriptures every day to see if these are so. Now, I want to base 
basically throw in something, just no extra charge here. Um, we, we did this on Tuesday nights recently, but there's no way you can do what I'm advocating today without a, crying out to God for grace. What we've had is we've had a 150-year trend toward less and less study. The average American today reads two books a year, and that's factoring in all the people who read not romance novels. It's also factoring in all the people who study a lot because the average American doesn't read books at all. So I understand when you walk in Grace Christian Fellowship's door and you get accosted with we're building a community lifestyle of, of study, study, study in lots of ways. I understand that that's overwhelming. I understand that you're like, what? <laughs> you know, this isn't the way I was brought up. Um, I was brought up that this particular paradigm is the right way and it was good enough for my parents and Archie Bunker or whatever, and it's good enough for me. But, you know, uh, I understand that. But you, let's draw near to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. I, I, it normally takes one, two, sometimes five years. But by God's grace, we, we really are multiplying the number of people who out of the joy of it, who out of the hunger for God, out of their experience with God, really want to study fully. We're going to talk about the theology class in a minute, but we're on our third running of the theology class, and we're on the fifth out of the eight sessions, and we have nine people who look like they're going to make, maybe 10, who look like they're going to make it through this time, which means we'll have over 20 people in the church that have, that have graduated from just that class alone. This summer, uh, I'm launching uh, two, two in classes in one one is you're going to be on church history. And then like, you know, if you're in high school, you're probably familiar with what they call advanced placement classes. So anyone who wants to be an advanced placement student of that class, we will be adding a book just as thick as Grudem Systematic Theology. Actually, it's now they're published together as companion volumes now on historical theology. So we will do church history. And those who want to the advanced placement version can do the historical theology as well. It's only 750 pages. <laughs> you could read that this afternoon. No, probably not. Acts 18, I'm out of time. So th again, Apollos, I really need to tell you this. Apollos was a guy, when it says that he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, he actually hadn't been instructed about Jesus yet. So what does that mean? He'd heard John the Baptist preach, but he'd grown up in the synagogue system, so he had been instructed in the whole Jewish scriptures. He had most of them memorized. That's why he was mighty in the scriptures. Now, this would never happen today. Priscilla and Aquila come along, and they're far less educated and far less charismatic than, than, uh, than Apollos, and they say, we need to straighten you out. <laughs> and Today, we just go, who are you? My parents wouldn't like that. <laughs> you know, I wasn't brought up that way, and you, where, where's your degrees from, and so forth. But they straighten him out because he's humble enough uh, to, to hear him out, and he begins to under, go through the same process Paul went through after Acts 9, where he's, after he meets Jesus, he has to rethink the entire Jewish scriptures as to how every bit of them were speaking about the things concerning Jesus. That's what Jesus had said in Luke 24, 
27 and Luke 24, 47, that everything in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms concerns him. Everything. That's why we have done over 50 teachings in the last four years in this church about how to find Jesus in the Old Testament. Because he's in there, like Prego, it's in there. He, he's, he's in every page. The whole Testament is about Jesus every bit as much as the New Testament is about Jesus. Now, that, uh, Galatians 6, 6 is the third technical example of how what the catechism meant a question uh, approach with memorized answers that included in large chunks of scripture memorization. Now, other New Testament phrases that demonstrate clearly that ongoing catechism, I'm on the back page now, uh, lifestyle, oral teaching, and explanation and memorization of content was and is an important New Testament church priority, the gospel. The English word for gospel appears 96 times in the New Testament. And uh, uh, as we already pointed out, it's used in 1 Corinthians 15 as a creedal statement for memorization. Because here's what happens. When you're brought up in a creedal church, you will not be led to Christ by that. I've met many a person brought up in a creedal church that's so far away from God that it's dizzy into my mind. Uh, some of the hardest people I've ever worked with to bring them to Christ were... We're brought up knowing the creeds. But here's what it will do. Jesus said um, that no one can come unless the Father draws him. You didn't choose me, and I chose you. At some point, when God starts working in your life, and maybe you were brought up in a Christian home, and when God starts working to where uh, uh, your parents' faith or those who you've known are gonna, is going to become your own experience in faith with God, which you have to go through that process. God doesn't have grandchildren, just children. Uh, and so when God starts doing that, if you were brought up in a creedal tradition, you will find your way to an orthodox, biblically-centered church. If you weren't, you may end up in a cult or other false religion because it will be, once you start experiencing spiritual things, it'll be whoever gets to you first. And sad to say, in our own time, some of the cults are much more aggressive about the Great Commission than the church especially the Mormons. Would that we all served a two-year mission period after college. Anyone want to sign up for that? We will disciple you and send you to Wright State and Cedarville and, and Central State and uh, all the places we intend in this neighborhood to start campus ministries. And we will equip you for it. And you can give two years for your mission just as a stepping stone to the rest of your life's mission. The faith, we already talked on Jude 1.3, contend earnestly for the faith that wasn't, was handed down. I wish I could get into these teachings, uh, but I'm way past my time already. The teachings, uh, I forget how many times that appears, I believe I've, a lot of times, but thanks be to God that th though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Now, uh, I don't uh, have a... By the way, uh, committed is that paradidomai again, to which uh, you were orally instructed and memorized and so forth. You became obedient to the heart to those teachings you were handed down, which are the teachings our Lord Jesus Christ authorized in the two testaments. 
and you want to fight for those things. That's what we're trying to do here. And, uh, and we want to pass them down at fully, completely, to next generations because the goal, if you, study any, if you study generational things in the Bible, you'll understand that the goal of, of any kind of leadership is that you're running a race, and when you hand the baton, you're going to hand the baton to people who are going to go way further than you. And you know what? Uh, there are lots of people in this church that have passed me in zeal, holiness, wisdom, knowledge, so forth. Uh, you know, my own son's a better Bible teacher than me. I don't care. <laughs> That's what I'm going for here. And uh, when I'm still having to crawl in in my old age and I'm 97 years old, if I Lord grants me life that long, I don't care if everyone's so much deeper than the Lord than I ever could have hoped for. That's the goal here. Can anybody get me another bottle of water? I don't intend to bring forth fruit in keeping with my repentance. Uh, the doctrines used 12 times by Paul, uh, but not any other New Testament writers. Uh, but he, he tells 12 times, he says, teach what is sound doctrine, which means the things that Jesus taught and the apostles teach and that you were taught. That's why in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he tells Timothy, five generations here, Paul, a disciple of Jesus, one generation, Jesus, to Paul, says, Timothy, third generation, I want you to find faithful men, fourth generation, that will be able to teach the fifth generation others also. And everyone knows in copying that when you use a copier, if you make a copy off the copy, the reason you want to make a copy off the original is because you're always losing quality. Thank God for electric digital duplication, because that's what we're going for. We're going for that the copies are as good or better. We want God wants by the Holy Spirit and the scriptures to make a, a copying process where the copy is actually improved. <laughs> Software that improves the copy. Digitally remastered. The traditions, uh, I'm going to move on. You can read that. Par paradosis. By the way, tradition, I do want to read one comment about tradition. Uh, we, tradition has gotten a bad rap since the Civil War. And what you really need to differentiate scripturally, read Matthew 15, Jesus blasts them about the fact that they're negating the commandments of God for the sake of their traditions. Traditionalism is a bad thing. Biblical traditions are not a bad thing. And you really have to differentiate the same. And I wanted to quote this uh, theologian that uh, Nathan and I like. Is Nathan downstairs? Or probably. Yaroslav Pelikan, great guy. I think he died recently. Uh, the best guys are always dead. But uh, tr <laughs> don't, don't take me too literally and shoot me. But uh, <laughs> tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Think on that. Traditionalism is the, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition lives in conversation with the past while remembering where we are and when we are, and that is 
uh, we who have to decide. Traditionalism supposes that nothing should ever be done for the first time, so that all is needed to solve any problem is to arrive at the supposedly unanimous testimony of this supposedly homogenized tradition. That's a huge statement. Spend some time thinking on that. It will yield dividends. Nextly, loving God with all your mind is part of the culture of GCF, and I already talked about that. I understand that we don't want, we are not performance-based. It's grace that leads to performance. The, the, the modern definition of grace, unmerited favor, is just part of the definition. Uh, real grace always brings forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Real grace empowers you. Real grace is our slogan, acceptance as you are, empowerment to grow. Real grace will give you the power to become a new creature in Christ Jesus. So it's okay if you don't have the kind of zeal for study that you're supposed to have. Just tell God that every day. I do. I, every day I pray, God, give me a hunger for your word. Make it fresh and alive. Cause me to like to study so much that once I get into this book or this, arranging the whole scriptures and so forth, uh, I'll turn off my cell phone and, and turn off the ringer on the, on the office line, and you'll think that I'm somewhere else or something. Uh, yeah, real study is, is painstaking diligence, but it yields great di dividends. And this idea that we're supposed to just have pastors that are educated and sometimes not that is not biblical. Loving God with all your mind is really, really, really important. Ned Berube, the president of the IRC, who many of you know, comes and visits for uh, three or four days during the week and goes to our right state meetings and so forth. Uh, last talk we had when he was here, he said, the thing I noticed most about your church, because you walked in on your theology study groups <laughs> that you guys do, that I'm not, whoever's idea, I think that was Eric Kamal's idea. Way to go, Eric. The best idea ever. Um... Better than napkins, even. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, he basically said, what I love about Grace Christian Fellowship is you have a culture of uh, valuing and studying the truth. Now, here's uh, some GCF programs. We, we will equip you for Scripture study through our podcast, we have a, at Wright State, we did for two or three years uh, a, a search the scripture study. I am glad to make that available to you in one way or another, but it's designed to equip you to get more out of your own Bible study. I don't really try to teach stuff that's comprehensive. I can try to give you the tools to get more out of your own Bible study. Uh, we have the systematic theology class, which will start its fourth running either this summer or this fall at the same time as I start, it'll be on different Sundays, as I start the church history and church theology class. I'm asking, if you haven't taken the systematic theology class, I'd rather you took that than to take my church history class, because it'll actually give you more background to be ready for the church history and the, and the historical theology class. We have foundational articles. See Deanna Brown. Where is Deanna Brown? Is she here? Deanna, stand up for a second. In case you don't know Deanna Brown, she's in charge of our foundational articles. They're in those racks back there, and they're designed to get you at least the tip of the iceberg on how to rethink major biblical ideas. So if a church's community is new to you, we have two uh, articles that will at least get you started on the church's community, etc. 
on restoring the gospel is, uh, and, and the need for a rethink on the whole gospel is new to you. We have a few articles along that time. And we have foundational and intermediate books. Emily Weiss is right there. Right, raise your hand or something. Turn around so everyone can see your beautiful face. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, Emily Weiss is a first-class biblical studier, theologian, who disciples ladies and empowers them to know the scriptures and knows more about scripture than me sometimes because of her classical background and all these things. And so glad that she's my daughter-in-law because I need people to teach me. Um, Bible studies at Wright State. Now, one of the things we've tried to emphasize, they're not just for Wright State people. We, We have three or four or five, well, about six newer Wright State people, some of whom are tracking with the church. Uh, they come to those, but we don't have the ability to be at this point in our development to be a missional church and do the outreaches we do and have discipleship groups because small group discipleship groups can have a tendency to turn inward. So this is a way of killing two birds with one stone. If you need to get more founded in things, we have a lot of content on Tuesday night and guess what? We have a lot of content on Thursday night. Jason has become first class. He's going through the book of Acts one chapter at a time, I guess two two this week because there was only 27 Thursday nights in this school year. And there's 28 chapters in Acts. But we break down into study groups. It's more of a a discussion format. Jason's way of teaching is uh, John and I are more like teaching like this, like lecture. Jason is more bring out a discussion. And they're they're full of insight because Jason does the homework ahead of time to make them full of insight. And there's other guys who actually prepare, like Stephen Leopold, and read like John of Chrysotham's commentaries on Acts or whatever before they come. And, and you know, it's, it's good stuff. 9.30 adult Sunday school. Could you not watch with me one brief hour? I never thought I'd be the pastor of a church where uh, we're actually down to about 50% of the people who come, come at 10.30 instead of 9.30. You know, I know it's America, and uh, John Piper has a great insight if you know who he is. He says the reason we can't get to Sunday school, the reason we can't get anyone to fast, is not because we're undisciplined and fat and lazy and overindulgent. It's because we're not very hungry for God. And I would encourage you, I've asked a group of 13 people in our church to fast once a week to pray that the hunger for God that we need will fall on this whole church. If you want to join that, fast on Monday, Wednesday, or Friday for for at least uh, 14 to 16 hours or 24 hours, whichever you want. Even pregnant women are are actually doing like a kind of a partial fast where they're giving up white flour and white sugar or something, (laughs) uh, you know, at least something. Because we need the hunger of God to fall on us. We have so much entrusted to us, and whoever has been given a lot, a lot will be required of them. And we need to understand that it, we cannot have just some team of 20 or so people that is really well-educated in the Scripture and really on fire and so forth. And we're actually in danger here of kind of becoming two churches, those who sort of get it and are totally sold out, and those who we're trying to convince to sell out. I'm being as clear as I can be on that. We're really kind of in that problem right now where we have uh, a lot of really radical, mature... There are are people in our church that that are more knowledgeable of Scripture and mature in their character and so forth than most pastors. 
And there are people who aren't progressing toward that in any significant ways. And, you know, part of that is you need a discipleship relationship with an older Christian. We have people trained, equipped, and qualified to do that. But part of what they'll take you through is the informational part you've got to study. You've got to take advantage of some of these Tuesday night, Thursday night meetings, podcasts. You know, I'm always bragging on my buddy John uh, Bradbury, but John Bradbury's probably, you've probably heard over 100 of our podcasts and you've been just coming a year. He never misses 9.30. And, uh, and, you know, and he doesn't miss on Tuesday or Thursday night hardly ever, although he, because of work he's late a little sometimes. So I'd better late than never, of course, especially if you're working. Lastly, the New City Catechism. We're way past the time. I'm sorry. You can. John will be back next week, and we'll be done by 10 minutes to 12, like we're supposed to be. And I'll be fired from this position. That's why I don't share at 10.30, because at 9.30, I have to quit before the 10.30. <laughs> That's actually why we made that change, among other reasons. Because uh, <laughs> at 9.30, you know, I turn into a pumpkin at 10.20. And... Uh, uh, the whole idea of catechism, we've talked about it. it uh, the New City Catechism, there's a website there that will explain it to you. Um, the early church did this. Real quick history. The early church did catechism. Somewhere around the 8th century, it began to fall out of use. It came roaring back with the Reformation. First, the Reformers were all catechizers. In both of these catechisms, the Heidelberg and Westminster, are Reformation catechisms. And all uh, Tim Keller has done is modernize the language and hone it down from like 110 questions to 52 questions so it can be done in uh, 52 weeks. And we want to get our kids to go through this three or four times in, in the ages between seven and, and 13 or 14, so that they are well-founded in the major ideas of Christianity. Because what we're up against right now is 45 to 70% of kids being brought up in Bible-believing homes are walking away from the faith in their college years. Now listen, I know people get tired of hearing me say this, and I, I think you're tired that I'm talking this long. You've never been a parent, maybe, if you have. Are you willing to say, I'm willing to keep doing the same old, same old, that, you know, the old saying that the essence of insanity is to keep doing the same thing and expect different results. 45 to 70% of kids that are growing up in Baptist, Nazarene, Christian Missionary Alliance, uh, you know, um, Assemblies of God, etc. not that I'm down on any of them, Church of God, all that kind of stuff, are walking away from the faith, and most are never coming back. That's why I do what I do so passionately every Sunday. We can't have that. Which one of your kids are you willing to sacrifice to Baal? To the gods of modernism. In the altars of self-indulgence, self-actualization and stuff. We can't have that. I want to equip all the parents in our church to win with 100% of your children. 
and have some of them pass you in the things of the Lord so that you're seeking them for wisdom after they're 16 or so years old. So you can have, you know, the, some of the greatest times of my life were after we started this church and we decided to build a church in the inner city for troubled people and where people who had lots of troubles could feel comfortable. If you don't have enough problems, you're probably not welcome here. No. <laughs> uh, we got suburban troubled people, country troubled people, and city troubled people. <laughs> Those are the three categories you, we have. <laughs> and uh, um, we didn't have a team. So every Sunday night, my kids, my wife, and I would worship. And Jason started joining us early on. And then we'd talk about what we should do and what God's saying and what, how should we solve this or that problem in the church. You know, my daughter Carla, who's not hearing this because she's downstairs cooking, she's been cooking the Sunday dinners for 13 years with no one else stepping to the plate to take it off of her plate because she loves to do it because it's part of our overall package of discipling more and more people. So, um, you know, to sit there and hear your kids have more wisdom than you in the things of God, which has happened to me many times, especially from Carla and John. Carla started laying stuff on me that was, because she has a real gift with relationships. And I can remember she was about eight or 10 years old the first time she took me aside and said, Dad, can, I, can we talk? You know, I... I just think you are a little too harsh on that person. <laughs> I'm like, you're eight years old. Okay. <laughs> but you're right. Okay. So, uh, you know, uh, this is why we got to do this. You know, in the 50s, there was a guy named Dr. Spock. And the whole, there's a lot of things that have changed in printing. But the, the here's what developed. And what happens in the world, unfortunately, there's a lot of reasons why in the modern church, what happens in the world overtakes the church instead of the church changing the world. And I can't get in on, into all of that. If you've been here long enough, you probably know some of them. But the idea of let the professionals do it was introduced. You know, what I say is if you're, if you're sick, you know, yeah, go to the doctor after you've spent two or three hours studying what, all about what you're going on with you. <laughs> Don't just take one doctor's opinion. Become your own doctor. And how much more so with the things of God? Listen, if you send your kids to Christian school and you send your kids to a, to a church like us, but you don't personally get involved in the daily catechism of helping them memorize their lessons and stuff, what you can expect is 45 to 70% of them will walk away from the Lord. And a very high percentage of the ones who don't will be mediocre Christians that don't know that much about their faith and aren't maturing in every way. I can't have that. I'd rather be a small church than continue to preside over that direction and have lots of big programs. I don't want programs. Our kids went to big programmatic churches and we were losing them in the programs because the kids in the program were way more worldly than you could ever imagine. Kids on a worship team that were actively homosexual, actively having sex with heterosexually, actively doing drugs, and they're on the worship team. I couldn't be a part of that. 
All right. Lastly, biblical remembering. The Bible is full of, we're about to do this in remembrance of me, and uh, the Bible is full of hundreds of exhortations to have memorial stones. Peter said three times, I'm writing this thing so you can bring into your remembrance all that was taught. Uh, You know, we don't need to hear something new. We just need to learn everything that was taught by the apostles. Amen.